So this is from Matthew, chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Our Father, it is good to be gathered together as your people this morning, and we come seeking to hear your truth. Uh, we come seeking to be encouraged and built up. More than anything, we come to, to see you revealed so that we can experience something of your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. And the reality is that um, myself alone, in myself alone, I have really nothing to offer more than any other person. And so I ask for your Holy Spirit to come and to help me and to speak through me that your son Jesus might be truly revealed to us in the scriptures this morning. And I ask this in his name. Amen. So um, I don't know about you, but for me, January is, uh, is a really strange month living in New York City. It's, I've got to be honest, it's not my favorite. Uh, we've all just experienced the magic of the holiday season in the city, which I love. Um, maybe you got to travel and see your family, and hopefully that was a good experience for you. But now we're sort of back, right? We're back to work. And you know what? It's cold. And it's also dark. And unfortunately, lately, it's also been pretty rainy, and it feels like there's not a whole lot to look forward to, right? Not that many upcoming holidays to be super excited about, maybe uh, Valentine's Day. Most people don't look forward to Valentine's Day that much, actually. Um, now, maybe you're not like me. Maybe for some strange reason, you do like January in New York. Uh, but I find it kind of funny that in the midst of this sort of dreary, dark season is when we are attempting to fulfill our New Year's resolutions. Uh, this is when we decide to get started on our self-improvement projects, uh, the month that we say to ourselves, I'm going to make this year better than last year. I'm going to leave my failures and my regrets behind, and I'm going to focus on my future successes. Um, and I hate to be that guy, and yes, I know I'm starting out very negative, uh, but I must quote this statistic from the Brain Research Institute which is that around half of Americans say they usually make New Year's resolutions. But what do you think the percent that is successful in achieving them? It's 8%. 8%. Uh, and so I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I, uh, I'm willing to bet that some of us are already a little disappointed in ourselves. What are we, 22 days in? Uh, maybe, maybe you made New Year's resolutions, or maybe you're just kind of hoping for a better year, hoping for a different feeling this year. Uh, okay, so, so not to be cynical about resolutions. I actually don't think they're necessarily a bad practice at all. And, of course, setting goals and working to achieve those goals and trying to be better, those are all 
good things. Um, but I guess my point and what I hope we'll do together this morning is to focus for a little bit um, kind of on what's underneath the desire to better ourselves. Why do we make resolutions in the first place? What is the longing or maybe the fear that's driving these actions and these mindsets? Um, Henry Nowen has this quote I like that he says, um, optimism and hope are radically different attitudes. So optimism is the expectation that things will get better. Not bad. Hope, on the other hand, is trust that God will fulfill his promises to us in a way that leads us to true freedom. You see the difference there? So resolution setting is a form of optimism, right? If I work hard this year, I can make things better. And that might be true to some degree. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But did you notice when we were reading this passage together what Jesus is pointing people towards? Even urging them towards in the passage, it's, it's not a shallow optimism. It's not marginal self-improvement. It's real, deep hope. It's true freedom, right? Something immovable, a rock, something beautiful that gets at our underlying longings. And so I think that the question Jesus is driving us toward is what are you building your life upon? Right? Not just how are you going to marginally improve yourself this year. What are you building your life upon? Is it rock or is it sand? It's a, it's a pretty simple dichotomy that he draws out in this little illustration. So instead of our resolutions, we're going to focus for a little while on our foundations. Uh, Jesus right, talks about two different people, one who builds his life on the rock, his foundation on the rock, and one who builds his house, his life on the sand. But then both of them go through a great storm, right? Equal experience there. So, so I think what Jesus is saying is that we're all building houses, and then, of course, we all experience storms, and therefore we need to all examine our foundations. So those will kind of be our three headings as we look through this passage. Uh, but, of course, I've tried to make them alliterate. Uh, is that a verb? Alliterate? Uh, so the structures we build the storms that inevitably come, and the foundation of stone. So the structures, the storms, and the stone. So if you get totally lost, hopefully you can find yourself somewhere in those, uh, those three headings. So notice what Jesus says when he compares the wise person to the foolish person. The wise person in verse 24 does what? He hears Jesus' words, and he builds a house. Now, in verse 26, the foolish person also hears Jesus' words and builds a house. In other words, everyone is in the construction business, which is a good business to be in in New York. Uh, but the foolish, both the foolish and the wise are in the construction business. To live is to construct a life based upon something, whether it's a philosophy, whether it's a dream, a desire, a set of principles. And, and this may be a conscious thing or and a specific thing, or maybe something we're not even aware of that we're building our lives upon. But I think Jesus' initial point here is that we're all doing it. And uh, as New Yorkers, we want the quick and easy solution, don't we? The, we want to throw up the house at the lowest cost, the fastest pace, with the best possible you know, sort of facade. And uh, this is true, I think, of the human heart in general. But especially in New York, we're looking for that shortcut, the fastest point from A to B. You know, get out of my way, I think, is the unofficial motto of our city. 
Uh, but Jesus is asking us to pause and consider very carefully what it is that we're actually building and what we're building it upon. Um, so I just mentioned that I work with international students at Columbia, and um, w one really fun thing about our group is that uh, we're kind of built the group around inviting people from every religious and cultural background to come and sort of read the texts together and discuss. Um, and so these are all brilliant people, as you can imagine. Um, and I had the privilege of studying this particular passage with them last semester. Uh, and as we explored sort of our hopes and dreams and what we're building our lives upon, the terminology that we used was false hopes versus a true hope. Like, what are false hopes to build your life upon, and, and what would be a true hope? Is there any true hope? A false hope is anything you build your life upon that's ultimately going to let you down, right? Uh, they, they might promise to fulfill you, to give you a good life, and to bring you happiness, but they can't make good on their promises. So an obvious example is career success, right? It's not a bad thing to spend time and energy on, uh, to put a lot of care into, but the problem with the human heart is that we don't just want to be successful in our careers. We want, to approve, we want to prove our essential worth through our careers. False hopes, in their nature, want to take over and become the central driving force in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, John Calvin said this another way. He said the human heart is an idle factory. An idle factory. So it may not be career success for you. Maybe it's simply the pursuit a pleasure and comfort, or maybe it's the desire for a life that feels controlled and perfected, or it could be many other things. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one particularly dangerous, dangerous and deceptive false hope from my own personal experience, which is trying to gain the approval of others through the outward appearance of good Christian ministry. Uh, it's not bad for me to want to preach a good sermon to you this morning to try to encourage you. But in preparation, I can tell you, if I'm being honest, that my heart almost immediately moves when I think of a point or a quip or anything. It moves to wanting to preach a sermon that will make you say, wow, look at that guy. He's, he's wise. He's amazing. He's funny. You know, he's a really good person. Um, and so do you see what's, what immediately happens in my heart is that I want to actually build my life around my identity around this false hope. But here is what Jesus is saying. False hopes are not a foundation. They are sand. They're only sand. So, so do you ever think of your life as a building project? Each day, each task, each thought even is another brick laid, another nail hammered in, another uh, piece of furniture arranged in a nicely constructed little house because we're all in the construction business, right? Uh, another way of saying this, um, I love this quote by Annie Dillard. She's an author. She writes, uh, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Maybe you've seen that quote kind of floats around. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And I think the point she's making is that how we feel each minute, each hour, and each day is not random or unimportant. The way that we spend time reveals what we believe the purpose to be underneath all of it. And so that hour of, you know, vegging out on your couch, not necessarily wrong, but it's building something. The day spent caring for a sick child who's home from school, that's building something. The minute-by-minute minute checking 
and scrolling on your phone is building something. And the slow time used up listening to someone tell their story is building something. So notice this as well about false hopes, that just by looking at them from the outside, you can't tell the difference between a structure built on the sand and a structure built on the rock. You ever thought about that? That uh, in this illustration, the, the two houses initially look the same. And so maybe um, your life looks put together and beautiful on the outside, but what is it built upon? What's it really about? Um, maybe some of you will know this, this interesting uh, sort of New York uh, tidbit of history, but St. John the Divine, the beautiful church, kind of cathedral up by Columbia, uh, was planned out in the late 1800s, and I ran across an article recently, and then that got me doing even more reading about it. It's really interesting. So when they planned it out, um, it was supposed, this is, you know, 100, almost 150 years ago, it was supposed to be the most astounding new structure in all of Manhattan, right? It was sort of designed to be breathtaking. Um, they, they got this plot as a high point up in Morningside Heights. Um, it was going to be this cathedral, and there was actually plans for the tower to be over 400 feet high. Um, but, but there's an interesting uh, problem that happened. So after an opening ceremony with lots of pomp and celebration and sort of the famous people of the day, this one article I read says this, during the spring of 1893, workmen began to dig. They found not solid rock, but springs, decomposing schist, sand, clay, loose boulders, and shale. Uh, fruitless digging, a publication called the New York World declared in a headline. The article said the crews excavated a pit 40 feet deep but found no bedrock. The gargantuan hole, it added, filled with water. <laughs> so long story short, after decades, decades of digging and digging and building and rebuilding, they were able to construct the beautiful church that you see today. But still, 130 years later, and again, you can look this up, there's an ongoing battle they have with natural springs that run underneath the church that flood the basement, that erode the walls, and they had to scrap the whole idea of the 400-foot tower because the foundation underneath wouldn't be able to support it. So here's my point. You may build a life that on the outside looks great. Both the wise man and the fool go out and build a house. You may even build something that looks beautiful, like a church, full of moral uprightness and good works and smiles. But if it's not built on solid rock, it cannot hold itself up. And Jesus is warning us that eventually it will come crashing down. So this brings us to our second point, that the storms of life will always come. And notice what Jesus says if you look at verse 25, and then again at verse 27, he says, The rain came down, and the streams arose, and the winds blew, and beat against the house. So this is true of both the life of the wise person and the foolish person. In other words, just being a Christian and building your life on the right foundation is not guarantee of an easy life or a happy life. The storms are a universal experience. Suffering is a universal part of life. Um, and, and if you bear with me, I promise the sun will come out <laughs> in this sermon. Uh, it's not all storms. But Jesus is making this, this point very clearly. Um, and so let's look at Jesus' description of the storms. He, he seems to give them three elements. The rain, the wind, and the streams. And um, 
I'm going to take a little bit of creative license here. So I, I can't say I know for sure exactly why Jesus uh, mentioned these three things, sort of exactly the same two times. But I think if we, if we do a little creative um, imagining with this, it can be helpful for thinking about how we experience suffering. So rain. It says that the rain comes down. And so the way I think of this is, is the trials that come down seemingly from above. Uh, we could call it the vertical storm. And this is the things that feel like, is this from God's own hand? Like, why is this happening in my life? That I can't seem to pinpoint a cause. It's just something awful. Um, you know, maybe it's getting laid off from a job simply because of economic downturn, right? There's, there's not a cause. It's, it's just sort of what's happening in the world. Uh, or maybe it's a loved one getting a, a terrible sickness. Um, or, or it could be not as dramatic, just those days when everything seems to go wrong throughout the whole course of the day. And it's just this vertical storm. It's like, why is this happening to me? The rain comes down. And, and uh, th this could be a whole other sermon that I don't have space for here, but there are times when we just simply don't have an explanation for the suffering that we experience, right? And then there's the winds. It says the winds blow and beat against the house. And so the wind doesn't come from above. It comes from the side. And to me, I think maybe this wind represents the trials that come from around us, meaning from other people, sort of the, the human level of suffering, uh, human-caused suffering. We could call it the horizontal storm. This is as simple as an unkind word from a friend, spouse, a coworker that ruins your day. Or it could be as massive as an unjust war in which thousands die, right? But where it's, it's very clear to see that this suffering is is caused by humans. This is all the injustice and the abuses and mistreatments that we see around us and we experience. And then finally we have the streams, right? And the streams seem to rise in this image. So you've, the, I think of these as the trials that rise up from within us, the floods of life, and we could maybe call it the inner storm. So all the suffering we cause to ourselves, right? If we're honest, we can't blame all of our suffering on things we can't explain or things from outside of ourselves, but a lot of it is from our own selfishness, from our own greed, from our secret lusts, from our bad decisions, the times that we harm those that we love, the times that we squander opportunities and sink into depressions. And so the question is this, as you look ahead to the coming year, I think we're still, we're still allowed to kind of look ahead to the year, we're still in January, do you have a foundation that can withstand these storms. Is there anything in your life that will not be taken away by suffering? It's an important question we should ask ourselves. And I think it gets at this dual thing Jesus is doing here. The first is a warning. Jesus is giving us a warning. If you build your life on anything, the foundation of rock, when the storms come, not if, when suffering comes, the house will not stand. And so maybe you've felt this for yourself, this warning. Money can't help you in the storm. Career success can't help you in the storm. Even the best spouse cannot be your foundation in the storms of life. And if you've lost a job or a relationship and realized how much of your life and identity depended on that thing or that person, you might know a little bit about what I'm talking about. So Jesus says, don't build your life on the sand. 
But he also gives an invitation. He says, yes, the storms will come, but there is a foundation that will hold through any storm, and everyone is invited to build their lives upon it. This is a rock that has no limited real estate. The opposite of Manhattan. <laughs> and so this brings us to our, our third point. We've looked at the structures we build, the storms that will come, but let's look at the stone. So, so what is the one true foundation for life, according to Jesus? And I think we have to do a little bit of good sort of Bible reading homework here. Um, verse 24 and verse 26 say uh, two interesting things. Things. They're very similar, but there's one difference. So everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like a wise man. But verse 26, everyone who hears these words and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. So there's one difference. It's whether or not you put Jesus' words into practice. Not just hearing them, but living them, doing them, leaning into them, breathing them. Now here's where we need to do our homework. There's, a, there's an easy moralistic interpretation we could make here. And, and the truth is that the way human beings are wired, we almost always jump to the moralistic interpretation. Okay? We could understand Jesus to be saying that to build your house on the rock is simply to live a good Christian life, to follow all the rules and put them into practice. That's what he says. And, and if you boil down every other major world religion and philosophy, basically that's what they all teach us. If you obey enough, follow the rules. If you're good enough, align with the principles enough. That's it. But this cannot be what Jesus means. And there's a couple of reasons. First of all, we know this can't be true through experience. We've all felt firsthand how building your life upon the foundation of your own good works and achievements and moral character is only sand in the end. And, and maybe we've only gotten small glimpses, but when real suffering comes, we begin to feel our limitations, don't we? we? Suffering causes us to feel our dependence. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, suffering is, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So that's the first reason why I, I reject the moralistic interpretation of Jesus' words. But the second and stronger reason um, is the context of this passage. So if you know... Um, where we are in Matthew, we're in chapter 7, we're at the end of chapter 7, and, um, and as you all, of course, have, have memorized all the chapters of Matthew and the different parts, uh, how they fit together, Matthew 5 through 7 is the famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's a long sermon, uh, all three chapters, and it, you've probably heard, you know, it starts off with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, this, you know, you've heard this. Um, and, and perhaps the central message of this entire three-chapter sermon that Jesus gives is to point out the impossibility of our own following the law perfectly, and thereby to show our need to trust in Jesus instead of ourselves, instead of our abilities. So I think when Jesus says, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice, he's talking about everything he just said. He, he's concluding his sermon, right? And saying, everyone who hears everything I just said and puts them into practice. All of chapters 5, 6, and 7. So he's saying, I have come to fulfill the law in your place because you can't do it on your own. Now hear these words and put them into practice. 
So then what is the foundation of stone in which Jesus, upon which Jesus invites us to build? It's not our attempts to follow him, but rather Jesus himself is the foundation. He is the stone. It's not an invitation to a set of principles. It's not an invitation to a moral standard. It's an invitation to himself to build your life upon him. And Jesus would have expected, I think, his original listeners to make this connection, especially when he said the rock. Because the rock was a common Old Testament image that signified God, right? Um, throughout the Old Testament, there, there are many references to talking about God as the rock. And we just, we just read one of the famous examples, Psalm 62. And so I'll invite you to flip back to page 7, and we'll, we'll look at a couple verses of this. So Psalm 62, let's, let's start in verse uh, 5. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress, I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Interesting, right? And there's many, many examples of this in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is doing something interesting with words here. He's taking ancient Hebrew words about the Hebrew God that these people would have believed for thousands of years, and he is saying to an audience, I am that rock. Build your life upon me. I have come to you in the flesh. And so that same um, encouragement and invitation in Psalm 62 to come now and find rest in God is to come and find rest in me. Place your hope in me. I will be your fortress in your salvation, your refuge. Come, trust in me. Pour out your hearts to me. All the rich and beautiful things he says in Psalm 62 are about himself now. I will be your rock, he's saying to these people. And of course, because Jesus is a suffering Savior, when we face the storms of life, we can know that Jesus, our foundation, has already gone through these storms for us, and he is still standing. So let's, let's think about the rain, this vertical storm of suffering. Really, ultimately, this is God's just judgment against our unrighteousness. And on the cross, Jesus was the rock who bore the brunt of this storm for us when God the Father poured out his wrath on his own son in our place. And if we think about the wind, the horizontal storm, this is ultimately our experience of the injustice of other people towards us. And who more than Jesus has experienced the injustice of others? On the cross and leading up to the cross, he was beaten by the wind of human abuse, a betrayal of his best friends, so that he could redeem, through the cross, the human injustice of the world. And the rising flood, this inner storm, is ultimately the sickness of our own hearts, the experience of our own sin, our own inner evil. And on the cross, Jesus, though he did not have any sickness in himself, took our sickness into himself and absorbed that flood for us. And so there's no suffering 
that Jesus, our rock, has not experienced, and yet he still stands in resurrection life, an immovable stone. Your false hopes don't love you enough to suffer for you. In fact, they don't love you at all. And they certainly will not hold you up in the storm. But Jesus is inviting you to build your life on him instead because he loves you and because he's already withstood the storms for you. And so then, what is there left to fear when we face these storms? Now, this is all hopefully great and interesting to you in concept, but as we think about the coming year, what is it? What w- would this or might this look like in practical terms for real people with busy lives like us? Um, I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old and a one-month-old at home. So, you know, I understand that putting this stuff into practice is a little more complicated than just hearing a sermon. What does it look like for us to build our lives upon Jesus, the rock, the foundation? So let me make three applications for us here as we sort of come to a close. Um, The first thing, as we um, meditate on this metaphor of putting our foundation into stone, what do we know about putting foundations into stone? Well, first you have to dig deep. To put a foundation into stone, you have to dig deep. And so back to Manhattan skyscrapers, um, in order to build the foundation of a skyscraper, you have to dig through all those initial layers of earth until you get to the bedrock. And then, once you're in the bedrock, you have to drive deeper and deeper down into it until the massive structure above will be secure. A one-world trade extends 150 feet underground, and 80 feet of it are rock anchors in that bedrock layer. And see, in order to build our lives upon Jesus, we need to dig deep into him. And so for many of us, getting practical, this may mean pushing past the sort of surface-level concerns and ambitions this year and pushing instead into difficult parts of our stories that we might rather brush off. Maybe it means going to counseling uh, or something similar that you have been putting off so that you can dig deeper into your own soul. Um, Frederick Buechner famously said, you have to listen to your life. And this digging deep also has to happen in community. We have to talk to true friends about real hard things in our lives. People who will ask you hard questions about yourself and go deeper and dig deeper into Jesus with you. And so I don't know the structure of your church, but I'm assuming you have small groups. Maybe that means joining a small group or community group, a Bible study this year so that you can meet those kinds of people regularly and get involved in their lives at that level. Or if you have a more immediate need to dig deeper and stop avoiding those hard things, reach out to Bernard and Betsy and other anyone else who's sort of on the care team of your church, and I'm sure they would love to do this kind of work with you, to pray with you and talk with you. Um, part of this digging deep is, I think, as Psalm 62 says, learning how to pour out our hearts to God, learning how to be brutally honest with God in prayer. I was just reminded of this reading First Samuel when Hannah, who is barren, goes to the temple and the priest Eli is sitting there watching her. Maybe you remember the story. And she's praying so earnestly and so fervently, uh, but she's not saying the prayers out loud that Eli thinks that she's uh, you know, had a little bit too much to drink. And he's sort of like, get out, you're, de- you're defaming the house of the Lord. And she's like, no, I'm just praying. <laughs> 
But maybe that's the maybe that's the type of pouring out our hearts to God that we need to um, that we need to do this year in order to dig our deep foundations deep into Jesus. Okay, so second thing, when you're digging a foundation into rock, it's slow progress. You have to dig deep, but it's slow progress, but you have to keep going. You have to keep going. So, so I want us to think about, you know, when we think about digging into bedrock, we're imagining modern construction projects with machinery and tools. But when Jesus told this parable a couple thousand years ago, there was no dynamite that could quickly blast into rock. So imagine the, the mental image of the time and the work that went into digging a foundation into rock that would have been in the minds of these original listeners. No explosives, no industri industrial drilling machinery. He's saying it's going to be slow progress, but keep going. Keep going. So in other words, it's more important to be faithful, and to keep digging, than it is to produce immediate results. Um, Eugene Peterson calls this a long obedience in the same direction. And I love that image. And so this might mean little practical things with our chisel and our hammer every day, right? Reading the Bible every day, even when we don't feel like it. Praying every day, even just finding those short amounts of time. Showing up to your community group or your small group every week. And, and this is not, remember, this is not about checking legalistic boxes. This is not the moralistic interpretation trying to measure up to God. It's quite the opposite. It's the slow work of learning to depend on God as our rock, precisely because we know that on our own we don't measure up. And on our own we can't do it. And this applies even to how we think about New Year's resolutions. What would it look like to base our resolutions, our hopes for the coming year, um, around this slow, faithful process of digging out foundations, rather than the desire for quick, easy improvements, for just getting a raise, um, you know, looking better, feeling better? So this year, how can you set up those rhythms and relationships that will encourage you to keep going, even when it's difficult, even when it's slow. And I was talking about this um, this passage and kind of this application with a friend who did actually provide me with a helpful corrective. He reminded me, yes, it's slow going, it's slow progress, and particularly when we're talking about building a foundation for our lives. But he but he also reminded me there is because uh, I said the dynamite. The New Testament actually uses the word. Greek word dunamis for the Holy Spirit, which is sort of exploding our lives with power and transformation. So I'm not saying that quick transformation can't happen by the power of the Spirit. Of course it can. And if you need, you know, real deep transformation to happen in your life, ask God for it. The Holy Spirit can do much more than we imagine. But I am saying, and I think Jesus is saying through this metaphor, that to lay a foundation for your entire life in general, is slow progress. That's my point there. Okay, third thing, and we're, we're getting closer to wrapping up here, which is that we dig deep, we go slow, but keep going, and finally, once we've, once we've dug the foundation, once we've built the house, we have to learn how to rest and trust in the foundation. And here's what I mean by this. Um, I think many of us know intellectually that our foundation is in Jesus. You know, you could have you could have said that before I preached this sermon. Uh, maybe you've even read this passage times before. And yet, if you look closely at my life or our lives, oftentimes you'll see that we still live as if it is up to us that when the storm comes, we have to hold the house up, right? It's it depends on my strength. If I if I let go, 
If I loosen my grip, it's going to come crashing down. We live with this anxiety of things falling apart. And I think this is a huge part of what Jesus is trying to encourage us that we actually don't have to do if our foundation is in him. If our foundation's in him, there's nothing left in this world or even in the next that can cause your life to fall apart in that ultimate sense. So Jesus doesn't want us to have our foundation in him just sort of for the sake of eternal security, right? When you die and go to heaven, everything will be fine. No, he's saying, I want you to experience the freedom today of having a foundation in me so that even when the storm comes, you don't have to live with crippling anxiety. We can live with peace and joy and enjoy the life that we have in the house that has been built upon him. And one other thing about this kind of freedom is that once you realize you don't have to constantly worry about keeping it all together, you can actually take your focus off your own construction project and help others build theirs. You know what I mean? Th this type of security and freedom, maybe you've felt this from other people who have that security and freedom, you sense it, and it empowers them to go out and serve and love others in risky and bold ways that seem terrifying to you. I know I've seen people do that and been impressed. Because if I know that my foundation will never fail, I'm free to sacrifice my time, my money, my resources for other people. It's another beautiful aspect of having our foundation upon the stone that we get to enjoy. So to wrap up that point, let me just say, Jesus wants us to enjoy the freedom of a life built upon the stone. Not constantly worrying about the storms, but freed up to spend our time and energy loving and serving others. So let me end with a story. Um, I recently read about this man named Reverend Charles Sherrod. Reverend Sherrod was a pastor and a civil rights leader who died um, just a few months ago at the age of 85. And I want to quote at length from a, an article um, about his life written by a historian who spent um, a few years interviewing him and studying him in the years leading up to his death. So I'm going to quote here. In 1961, Reverend Sherrod and several others were thrown into prison in Rock Hill, South Carolina in their attempt to challenge segregation. They were beaten, mocked, and finally put in a terrifying solitary confinement known as the Hole for, quote, refusing to stop singing hymns during their morning devotions. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Reminds me of the Apostle Paul. Sherrod knew the rural South. He understood how easily he might be killed. But Sherrod recounted to me, this historian, I was already in my progress of praying to take away fear. So he prayed from the hole, from solitary confinement. And a passage that would become a touchstone in his life, indeed one read at his funeral, came to him. For I am convinced that ni neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in that moment, he believed it to, it to its depths. Not even death could separate him from Jesus. So he had nothing to fear. Sherrod was free, and he would live with this fearless assurance of God's love the rest of his life. And as he told me, quote, These verses have led me through my life and led me into the slashing of fear, with whom I stood before men who have slain many black men, 
men whom I knew had killed blacks before they stood before me. And I stood there before them without fear, without one shaking finger or knee, knowing that the Lord was with me. Isn't that an awesome story about a life? And don't you see how different this is than making resolutions and trusting in our own abilities? This is the true, unshakable foundation of God's love. It's a life built on the rock that doesn't offer us mere happiness. It offers us a life shot through with meaning and purpose and fearlessness even in the face of mortal danger even. A life that no storm can threaten. A life that even the worst suffering can't take away. And of course we may not all be called to such heroic things as the Reverend Sherrod was, but we are all called to hear the words of Jesus and to put them into practice, right? To live by them. We're called to radical generosity. We're called to service in our everyday lives because the way we spend our days is, of course, the way we spend our lives. And that kind of life is only possible when Jesus is your rock, when you dig deep into him, when you keep going even when it's slow, and when you've learned how to rest and trust in him as your foundation. And I said that article that uh, Reverend Sherrod was thrown into solitary confinement for singing hymns. And I'm not sure what hymns he was singing, but I would like to think that, it's, that one of them was the hymn we're about to sing together, which is, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me pray for us. Father, I simply want to ask that you would help us in this coming year, and really for the rest of our lives, to reject the desire to build our lives upon sand, upon false hopes, upon things that make promises to bring us thin and shallow happiness, but instead that you would give us the wisdom <coughs> and the clarity and the reminders to build our lives upon your son Jesus, who is our rock and our refuge. I pray this for all in this room that we might experience the freedom that is to be found in him. Amen.